Welcome inside the Celtics Lab podcast. After a week for the history books and all kinds of ways we'd rather it were, we decided to reconvene in front of the pod and NBA collective bargaining expert, Professor Jeremy Duru, uh, to take the pulse of a season taking place mid-pandemic, mid-social justice movement, and startlingly, perhaps post-coup attempt. I'm Justin Quinn here with Celtics Lab's Alex Goldberg. We have a little bit of typical NBA business to discuss before we dive into the most important stuff. How's everyone doing? Doing well, Justin. How are you? Well, a little freaked out, but uh, calming down. <laughs> we can get into that in a minute. Uh, how about you, Alex? You know, um, it's been unquestionably a really weird week. So between just constantly refreshing my Twitter feed and actively destroying my mental health and, uh, <laughs> you know, just kind of generally trying to grind through the year, I think I'm ultimately doing okay uh, in large part because the Celtics came back last night, and they're my main source of serotonin now. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, let's get the elephant in the room out of the way in terms of that typical NBA business. Uh, James Harden is now a Brooklyn Net. What do we yeah. what do we think about that? I mean, it's an absolutely earth shattering trade. Uh, you know, pairing Durant. Harden, and if he ever comes back, Kyrie Irving together on the floor, uh, that could be, you know, that's going to be nothing less than a historically great offense if all those parts uh, can work out the kinks. Um, You know, Irving is definitely a question mark. Uh, His play has been great this year when he's been on the court, but he has not been on the court a lot. Uh, Durant is still coming off an injury, and Harden uh, did not play all that well as a kind of demotivated player in the Rockets organization, but uh, let's not get it twisted. These three guys are between them, probably three of the 10 best offensive players in the NBA. They are going to score over and over and over again, and they're going to be really hard to beat. Not invincible, but it's a really, really good basketball team, at least on paper. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I mean, not invincible, certainly. We've seen super teams succeed and we've seen super teams come short of succeeding, uh, and this is without doubt a super squad, as you point out, when each of those three guys are at their best, yeah, let me put it differently. If each of those three guys are at their best, it's hard to imagine them being beaten. Uh, but as you also pointed out, for various reasons, each of those three guys conceivable might not be at their best. And so when you've got two plus one who's little diminished or one plus two who are a little diminished, you know, we'll see, but the potential uh, is um, extraordinary. The trade, as you said, is, uh, is, is an earth-shattering one. I'm really excited to see how they're going to fit together or if they're going to fit together. Uh, I do think, at least in my opinion, this was a bit steep of a price. I mean, maybe it is the price you just have to pay to put, get, to put together a team like this. But considering that they only have basically two seasons after this one before they can all opt out. It seems like a really scary thing to do, but I mean, I guess if there's a team out there that can, you know, rebuild without draft picks. Yeah. I mean, the thing is at the end of the day, the NBA uh, life changes really fast in this league. So you can be well set up for the future with a nice stash of draft picks and young assets going. And then that can change overnight, depending on, you know, injuries, contracts, what have you. Uh, And if anything has been proven in this league, if there's one rule that we can think of, it's that uh, the team that has superstars almost always wins the title. It's the fastest way to win it all is to get superstar level players. So 
it's a huge gamble for sure. If it doesn't pan out, the Nets are going to have some long, hard years. But uh, the counter argument to that and the one that's been kind of the prevailing knowledge in NBA GM circles is if you have a chance to win the title, you just have to go for it. Yeah, you shoot your shot. You shoot your shot. The opportunity was there and I seized it. I think you're right, Justin. Um, uh, the price is steep. When I first read the price, <laughs> I, was, you know, I got a sticker shock was reading it, but um, you take your shot and you see what happens. And uh, I mean, you, you got to credit um, their moxie and get and giving it a run. Yeah, absolutely. So what do we think uh, this team is going to end up by the end of the regular season and in the playoffs? I mean, are they really a title contender uh, or do we still need to wait and see if this works? I mean, there's going to be growing pains for sure. I don't imagine that the fit is going to be immediate. Um, they will have to take some time to kind of incorporate James Harden into an offense that isn't just James Harden ball. Uh, and that's going to be a minute. And the Nets do have some concerns, especially defensively with the way that their roster is currently organized. Jared Allen and Karis LeVert were two of their better defenders. And now they really don't have a ton of those unless DeAndre Jordan really uh, digs deep and finds something that he hasn't so far shown. Uh, but, you know, with all of those guys together, if they can get right in a month or two uh, and look kind of to peak heading into the playoffs, they're going to be extraordinarily hard to be in a seven game series. Uh, the way that things look right now, I would probably peg the Nets to be at minimum in the Eastern Conference Finals. Uh, and where they go from there will largely depend on factors like health and who their opponent is. Yeah, health for sure. I mean, health can can derail anything, you know. So if we have a health issue, we could be talking about something very different in a few months. Um, but with that said, I think the key thing you said there was fit. It's all about fit. You know, hopefully, you know, for the club, the fit is, you know, the puzzle pieces come together seamlessly earlier than later um uh, if there isn't fit and that begets drama then we'll see some problems um but the potential is there for them to um you know walk away with this whole thing and i agree i'd pay them to be in the eastern conference finals so speaking of health uh talking about a game that we weren't even sure was going to be played 48 hours ago the Celtics uh, returned to action against the Orlando Magic and won uh, pretty convincingly 124 to 97, though it was a little rough in the middle of the game. Any thoughts about uh, the game in general, if you had a chance to see it? And um, I don't know, is this, a, is this a real Celtics surge with them at the top of the East? Uh, well, when you watch the game last night, uh, I think one thing stood out to me in particular, which is that Jalen Brown was just much better than everybody else on the floor. Uh, and he's now gotten to the point where he's going to have those nights against teams that are either depleted or, um, you know, maybe going through some struggles or they're missing a couple of assignments here and there. Uh, there's going to be nights where Jalen is just going to do that. And that has so far been kind of, the straw that stirs the proverbial drink for this Celtics run. He's just been excellent. And some of their depth pieces like Peyton Pritchard and Semi Ojale are also starting to emerge. So uh, I think Orlando 
was really shorthanded last night. They had a lot of trouble creating offense and are clearly feeling the loss of Markel Fultz as their starting point guard. So uh, Orlando might be in some trouble here. And Jalen was just pretty unguardable, you know? Uh, Sometimes it's just like that. So I I think you can take away some stuff from this win, but ultimately uh, this was was a mismatch. Yeah, I... I, um... I agree totally. I think you can take some things away from this win. Certainly was a mismatch of Fultz going. First of all, how bad do you feel up for the kid? I mean, he's just had such a hard run since he got into this league. He's such a talented guy. I don't know him, but I understand him to be a really nice guy as well. And so um, the injuries, I just feel horrible for him. Um, And so I do think it was a mismatch. Uh, uh, But I actually did not even watch the whole game because of attending to some of the other ridiculous issues that are <clears throat> um, that are the reason why everybody said at the beginning of the call they're not doing so well. I said, I'm doing well. And um, I realized I was just reflexive in that response. Really, I'm not. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and, um, and so it's rare as somebody who studies sports, loves sports, writes about sports, works in sports, to say that I don't, you know, watch all of games anymore is pretty startling, even to hear it come out of my mouth. But it's true. I mean, so much else is going on. I'm finding myself distracted um, by really, really important things from things that I love, but that as a relative matter, maybe aren't as important. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I have a family member who is fighting uh, with, with a COVID in, in uh diagnosis right now. And, you know, mentally speaking, I am definitely not well in the sense that you would normally mean that. And I think a lot of us are kind of, you know, dealing with this and we're watching the the COVID-19 surge in the league. And, you know, like when I saw the other day that of all people, Carl Anthony Towns has now been diagnosed with that losing six family members. I, I realize that the, the NBA is a capitalistic venture and there's just certain things that are necessary for it to continue moving forward as an entity. But I, I, I want to get your feeling since we're, we're, we're kind of, you know, touching on that. Is this even ethical? Uh, is there a choice? Are there options? Like what are your thoughts on all these cancellations, these diagnoses? I mean, we don't even know if the Celtics, as you said earlier, if their best player is going to have long-term damage from this. We have absolutely no idea. Officially, they, didn't even, they aren't even confirming that he has COVID, though I trust the league sources who have reported it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know, Justin. I mean, I- I mean, we have a few things to talk about today, um, but when you talk about everything you just talked about, COVID, the way it's ravaging the league, the way it's ravaging society, um, and then you talk about the way our society is being ravaged um, by this uh, insurrectionist um, <laughs> ideal movement, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, yeah. I, you know, I don't know. I don't know what sports place is right now. Usually, you know, I'm some, I'm with, you know, I'm with Nelson Mandela's quote that, you know, sports can change the world and it can, and it's critical to unify. Um, but it just seems like there's so much going on that maybe sports doesn't deserve um, the prominence it's traditionally had. Let's just talk for a moment about the health piece. I don't know if you saw, saw a CBS news article where the surgeon was talking about 
um, the extent to which the lungs of even asymptomatic COVID carriers um, are damaged almost always. And they look a lot like the lungs of smokers. If this is true, then not just for the average Joe who's sitting on the couch talking about sports, like three of us, but for those whose lives um, revolve around their ability to breathe deeply, exhale, and exercise vigorously, and compete in sport, I don't know if we should have folks engaging in this time. I just don't know. I mean, we don't know about the risks, and we don't know about the consequences. And if we look up five years from now, um, and the athletes who we loved in 2020, 2021 are having a hard time breathing because they were exposed to COVID disproportionately, disproportionately because of their jobs. Um, you know, I think that there'll be a lot of looking in the mirror for a lot of people. I'm concerned there may be some even before that. Uh, yeah. When we see the UF student, University of Florida yeah. student, who collapsed on the court because he had an underlying heart condition that was undiagnosed that was exacerbated by, by COVID diagnosis. I mean, that's just like, is it worth it? Yeah, you know, I think both of you have really laid out uh, quite eloquently what what's going on here and uh, the sheer levels of danger that are uh, possible. I think, um, you know, it's worth keeping in mind that the players very much, a lot of them did push for this. They, they did want sure. to play through. Um, there's a lot of money at stake for sure. But I think as uh, this continues to escalate and as you see teams like Washington, uh, you know, missing five players with positive coronavirus tests uh, or, or just outbreaks happening all over the league. I mean, the Suns have gotten hit. Uh, the Wizards have gotten hit pretty hard. And you get the sense that this is just going to kind of keep happening uh, and it will take something potentially very dramatic uh, to really force the league to stop at this point. Um, and, you know, I, I, I have my reservations about that, to be frank. I, I personally don't think it's a good idea for them to continue. But there's certainly other factors uh, that have to be considered in that calculus when you're talking about um, what the league should do as far as addressing this crisis. There have been some talk about kind of restarting a bubble idea where there would be, my understanding is basically four separate bubbles around the league. Uh, and they, those teams would just play each other for the most part. Um, but I don't think that's going to gain much traction with the players union. So we will see. Yeah. We're talking, I know we're talking, you know, pro basketball here, but you did mention Justin, the UF, the kid from UF. If it's the case that this is ethical, as a professional sports matter, is it ethical as a collegiate sports matter? Not at all. <laughs> it's not. It's already not ethical. Yeah. Yeah, it's not. It's not. And I, you know, that I, I um I have a hard time, and I think my instinct would be, um, at the very least, the business model currently existing can't continue. Yeah. So maybe pursue some sort of bubble approach, Doc's mentioned, but um, but maybe more than that, maybe just. Uh, Shut it, you know, shut it, shut it down. As hard as it is to say, I mean, we don't know, we don't know much about the virus, and we know even less about the various variants Indeed. that are swirling around the globe right now. So it's a very tough situation. 
I'm wondering if that more contagious variant was part of what was going on. All of a sudden, six wizards test positive out of nowhere, and you know everyone who played them for the last several, last last eight or ten days or so was returning positive tests left and right. It makes me wonder if necessarily all you know. I don't want to suggest that the wizards are you know doing anything underhanded, but it makes me wonder if every every organization is treating this situation with with the same degree of attention and concern that they should be. There's really no way to know unless, you know, the league is doing some very careful auditing, but I don't necessarily think they are. Well, Justin, uh, to that point, I do think, you know, based on just stuff that I have read from other sports journalists, it does sound like there is a source of frustration, particularly with uh, the staffers who are being asked to be a part of managing this process. Another group of people that we also have to consider um, but, you know, I read an article, I forget exactly who it was by, that basically said there's anonymous staffers coming forward to journalists and saying, we can't keep up with the latest protocol, the amount of stuff that we are being asked to change and to do uh, in order to adjust to this situation. We don't have enough personnel to actively manage it. Um, and, and you bring them I in do, and you have a bigger problem. Yeah, exactly. So. Uh, I, I do think that there is something to this idea that each organization is kind of going through their own struggles. Uh, and to that effect, I think um, it's going to be the case that you might see, particularly this season, if it does continue, I, I, I think you might see teams with really big markets and the money and infrastructure in place to invest in really strong staffing and medical teams and organizational support. You might actually see those teams do better this season with their players but again coronavirus is unpredictable so even teams that are well equipped like you know the nets have more money than anybody in the universe and kevin durant had to sit out in COVID protocol so you never know well there is a connection to the next issue i would like to discuss and during you know mentioning the washington wizards uh last week had there been a different, slightly different tweak to the schedule, we might have had a situation where the league would have had to make a decision about whether to play a basketball game, not only in a pandemic, but in an ongoing insurrection coup attempt. I don't know what you want to call it. I think there's good arguments pro and con, but really I think what we should be focusing on is what is the NBA's role uh, in the midst of whatever you want to call this thing, where there is a historic risk to not only uh, the people in the immediate proximity, but really all of us. Uh, it seems to me, uh, and it's being not really covered as well as it should be by the media, shocker with such a corporate influence in it, but I digress. The There seems to be a very powerful component of white supremacy, uh, white supremacist movements, and um, some just absolutely bonkers stuff in terms of the Q cultists. Um, we have, you know, Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, um, other coaches around the league, uh, Doc Rivers, um, a whole bunch of people, D'Angelo Russell had some good things to say, um, turning the lens back on to the media, um, discussing what is going on with these capital riots or whatever you want to call them? Um, it just seems to me, as you were talking about, uh, Jeremy, that there is too much being asked of these people, just too much. And 
I don't know. How do we feel about this? Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, th I think, well, first of all, uh, let's take a moment just to, you know, to think about the historic uh, way of what happened. You know, nothing, you know, nothing like that's happened. You know, everyone speaks of that War of eighteen twelve. Do you realize how long eighteen twelve is ago? I mean, it was years. It's been, you know, it's been centuries, certainly. But I mean, in the mind's eye, it's been forever that since this country has has experienced something like this. It's frightening. It's extraordinary um, uh, because it was because it was treated so lightly. It came very close to being a horrific incident. Uh, we're still in the midst of of. Uh, uh, of the um, crisis born of it. Um, and so I think, you know, I think everybody, um, maybe, more, you know, I don't know, I don't know if too much is being asked of them, maybe not enough is being asked of the rest of us. Yes. I think a lot has to be asked of all of us to, um, to, you know, to push back, uh, you know, these sentiments. Uh, you know, sport is, has such a platform, um, and, and sport used its platform so effectively uh, last summer. Um, and I think that I think the time remains and certainly time is there now for sport to continue using its platform to fight back um, uh, these destructive uh, perspectives. But I think all of us, every single one of us, I mean, it got to where it got to last Wednesday because for years things have been building, have not been checked. Uh, and they exploded. I think it's up to all of us in our daily lives and conversations to focus on what is fact and what is real and make sure that we all understand what the facts are. And then people of different you know, political persuasions can talk about you know, their views on the facts. But I think we're in the boat we're in because um, some things that are simply not facts have been peddled as facts. I mean, I totally agree, Professor. And, you know, I think uh, th this, is this is the culmination of events. This is, this is, you are right to point out absolutely that this is extraordinary in that, you know, we've never had a siege on the Capitol since the War of 1812, for sure. But at the same time, this is to some degree a logical progression of a country that was ultimately founded on you know, white supremacist ideals and historic disproportionate violence against communities of color. That's just a fact of this country's history that many, many people are just not uh, willing to grapple with at this time. And I think it's interesting uh, to kind of bring this back to the NBA's role, you know. So uh, we have to also, I think, consider the perspective of a player that we talk about a lot on this podcast for various reasons in Kyrie Irving, who uh, himself is a black and indigenous man. Um, you know, Kyrie took a prolonged leave of absence from the Brooklyn Nets, and it sounds like he's gonna be coming back relatively soon, but um, he, couldn't, he couldn't be around basketball at that time. And mm -hmm. based on the reporting that we're hearing about that, which is inconclusive to say the least, but it sounds like he was attending council meetings and genuinely upset about what was going on and who can blame him. You know, this is a guy coming from uh, two perspectives of people that have been, uh, you know, the most attacked by this kind of toxic white supremacist ideology in our history. So I think it makes complete sense for him to 
kind of not be super interested in basketball at this moment. And I think that that is something that is certainly weighing on the minds of the players. You know, we heard Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum uh, pretty forcefully condemn what was happening uh, in their press conferences uh, on the date that it did happen. Celtics played a game against the Miami Heat. Um, I think knowing that the NBPA and LeBron and Jalen and Giannis and all of these kind of prominent stars of the league have been super active uh, in fighting for the causes that they care about, I don't think that it's a stretch to say that we're going to see more on that front. But at the end of the day, the NBA is a business. It is a capitalist business. And in America, capitalism and white supremacist ideology largely go hand in hand for the most part. So it's a tricky balance. But I, I do think that the players have uh, pushed pretty passionately to use their platform here. So at the very least, you are right, Professor. It is something that we are all going to have to work on ourselves. But um, one of the cool things about sports is seeing people uh, use their platforms to talk about things that are bigger than this. And uh, I, hopefully, you know, figures like Irving and Brown and others can inspire people to be uh, more aggressive in rooting out white supremacy in their own lives. But it's, it's not going to be yeah. easy. I'd like yeah. to... Um... I would like to also turn the lens back on what they were saying at the time uh, for anyone who is chafing at the suggestion that they live in a country that is based on white supremacy. If you need empirical evidence, go back and look at the videos of the Black Lives Matter protests and then look at the police response to what happened on Wednesday. And if there isn't if there's anything that drives that point home more visibly, more clearly, I can't think of one. It's just night and day, the way that people were responded to. I mean, whatever we want to think about the ongoing investigations about potential police involvement and potential white supremacist infiltration of law enforcement, which is again, another related issue to those Black Lives Matter protests, even if we want to bracket that, just looking at the difference between tear gas, rubber bullets, and you know shields and militaristic responses to literally just walking right by them, you just can't get a more night and day picture. Yeah, yeah, no, you hit it on the head. I mean, it is the uh, the contrast the juxtaposition is just striking and extraordinary. Um, the, you know, the problem is that there will be people who will not accept that just juxtaposition exists. And they will say, oh, no, these images are photoshopped. They're from something else. I mean, this all started back <clears throat> with Trump's inauguration when he said that he had the biggest crowd ever. And, you sh and, and pictures were shown of the crowds and previous inaugurations and his and his was smaller. He said, no, mine was bigger. And you look at the pictures. No, no, that was smaller. No, no, mine was bigger. And people believe it was bigger. And so once you can't, as I said, once you can't agree on the facts, it's hard to persuade. So there will be people out there who will say, no, no, you know, the, the, um, you know, the, this, this image isn't actually from the Black Lives Matter uh, protest. It's from something else. And, 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 and this isn't really, what, you know, the image that, was, that, that we had at the Capitol, really something else was going on, but it wasn't actually photographed. And, and you know, that's all fake news and all this sort of crap. 
And when you get into that and you can't accept the facts and it's hard for people to do what you just said, Justin, people need to recognize, which is there's a clear racial discrepancy with respect to the way in which these two situations were handled. We have to get back to the facts. Yeah, I don't yeah. know we're going to do that either. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Deprogramming. Deprogramming. Yeah, no, I think it's not going to be easy. And, uh, you know, just to kind of, again, refocus on how this is going to affect the league. Um, it's going to take some hard conversations, particularly, I think, between players and some owners. Uh, there are some NBA governors that were pretty serious contributors to the Donald Trump campaign, whether they agreed with him politically or not, or whether it was just a kind of cynical money-based thing. There are people in the NBA who actively support causes like this. Their owners, their players. I imagine that there are all sorts of people, and uh, that is gonna that's gonna have to be a conversation. And I think there's gonna have to be a real kind of reckoning there between that and a predominantly black community in the NBA that, uh, for the most part, is largely opposed to all of this nonsense. Um, you know, we'll see. I think. I think there is, as, as you both have said, there's gonna be a kind of challenge over the narratives and uh, how, how this is gonna be spun because there's a lot of people who are going to view this through their own specific lens. Uh, and I think that, that might be something that we see going forward in the league as more and more kind of uh, tension escalates between uh, some, some of the people in, in this institution. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I feel like there's a bit of a detente in, in regards to that right now. I feel like people are still trying to get their bearings and still try to formulate their thoughts. And in some ways, I'm kind of glad that the media has not been picking at them, like, give me a response about this. Give me a response about this. And I, I am sometimes guilty of that myself. I've been trying to be a little more cautious with that recently just because I know from my own mental health that I am myself pretty overwhelmed and I'm white and I am in Mexico. <laughs> so <laughs> um, it's kind of different for me to say the least. But more generally, what are our roles, you know, as academics uh, or analysts or media or, you know, kind of some of those all at the same time? Um, I think our, you know, our roles, Maybe we weren't doing them well enough. Going to the, you know, going to the point Alex made. But our roles are to keep these. You know, our roles are to keep, are to ensure that people of all stripes and all situations continue to talk about this stuff. That those are. All, I'll speak for myself. I don't want to. I don't want to put any role in anybody else. As an academic, that is my role. My role is not to allow for. Uh, there to be any sort of narrative in let's say three months that you know what happened back on January 6th was a historical artifact it was um, uh, a blip um, we're healthy and so on and so forth uh, it was not that um, it cannot be viewed as that it cannot be painted as that uh, and so my role I feel is to make sure that we um, you know keep you know keep keep our uh, our eye on the issue and make sure, do our best to make sure others keep their eye on the issue. Um, and I don't, you know, you make a good point, Justin. I don't know if, you know, I don't know, uh, all of us are less than 100% mental health. And I think you're right that, um, 
those in the league, athletes, um, should be able to gather themselves as well. And so maybe we don't have to stay on top of them all the time. Uh, um, but we have to, but we have to be speaking all of the time, maybe not in a targeted way saying, Hey, I, I need you to come out on this, speak on this, be active on this. But I think we have to keep the issue, uh, uh, you know, alive and at the front of our minds. Uh, the one thing we can never allow to happen is for the quote unquote, shut up and dribble crowd to be successful. Mm -hmm. We need to make sure that the athletes, when they want to speak, that they are not intimidated such that they don't speak. That's, that's, you know, I guess when it comes down to it, I think that's, that's our role. That's our duty. Couldn't agree more. And, you know, as a kind of fellow educator myself in high school setting, I think that's that to your point there, that's one of the kind of essential functions of teachers in the society is not to necessarily, you know, hammer our ideas about the world into young people, but merely to open up space for them to explore them and to kind of take uh, you know, these thoughts into account and build their own conclusions. Uh, I think the same can be said of how we're kind of talking about the NBA players here. Uh, for us as media people, our job is, is not to you know, spin yarns about uh, everything uh, that these people believe and you know, kind of project and do all of that. Our job is primarily to open up space for the players and their actions and their words to be taken seriously. And I think uh, you are, to uh, your point, Professor, you're, you're being kind of derelict in your duty as a media member if you are part of this shut up and dribble crowd, so to speak. You're literally ignoring your responsibilities as a disciplined member of the media. Your job is to tell the stories and perspectives of the athletes that you are covering. Your job is not to pick and choose when they get to speak. It never has been. Yeah, you know, I got to say, you, 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 uh, you're not just ignoring your responsibilities, you're betraying your responsibilities. Mm -hmm. I think there's real malfeasance in it, you know, not just nonfeasance. Yeah, there is, there is a certain quiet indoctrination that takes place when you can sit from a position of privilege and do that. I think that that in fact is a big part of what led to this boiling over and this, this accumulation of misinformation because people could go and hide from alternative viewpoints and alternative understandings and alternative experiences than their own. And it's good that people can find ways to escape from you know, the rigors of trying to exist in a capitalistic economy that has gone very far uh, from caring about people in any kind of social uh, collective safety net kind of framework. And I don't know. I think that that kind of speaks to our role, again, to circle back as, as media to keep pushing back against that. Um, you know, initially, I wanted to end this discussion um, with a discussion or at least a mention of whether or not things um, regarding social justice in the NBA have kind of been pushed to the wayside um, because of, you know, assumedly uh, the, the, the exigencies of operating a capitalist uh, mega billion dollar business in a pandemic. Um, but in some ways, I kind of feel, at least for the moment, that maybe it's it's necessary and maybe we do need 
maybe the league needs as an institution and on a more you know discrete level more time to reformulate what the role of sports is what our role as individuals are and and how we can leverage that in a way that isn't just patting ourselves on the back or, you know, at the other end of the spectrum, kind of, you know, picking at scabs on still fresh wounds that we really shouldn't be. Yeah, I think that's true. And uh, I think that, you know, there is a blueprint in place here if we want to look to kind of the history of the league as to kind of how they can respond in moments like this. And I agree, I think it will take uh, some time to kind of step back and uh, reevaluate things so to speak. But, you know, there is precedent for the NBA and particularly for the players leading the NBA and really doing some extremely powerful things here and flexing their economic muscles as a kind of force for social change. And if it doesn't happen right now, it could certainly still happen in the future. You know, if you want to look at a recent example, regardless of uh, what you think about the success or failure of the Democratic Party, John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock both won their special elections in the Georgia Senate race. And a lot of, uh, they, I imagine they got a lot of votes uh, in large part because of the visibility that the NBA and the WNBA in particular was able to project uh, in kind of allying themselves, particularly with the Warnock campaign. The Atlanta Hawks, for example, have opened up their arena as a voting facility uh, in the 2020 election. That there's real tangible steps that the league can take, um, you know, and that applies both to the world outside of the league and the world in the operations inside the league, you know, with regard to player activism and particularly player labor activism. If you look at, uh, you know, the strike that occurred in the bubble or uh, Bill Russell's kind of long history of uh, using his platform to work as an activist or Kareem, you know, there's, there's so many instances of players using their kind of magneticism and power to really make some impactful changes. And, uh, you know, I, I think the work is always gonna be ongoing because that's just what we're up against. But um, there's definitely even in the kind of superstructure of a capitalist business that the NBA is, there are ways to meaningfully affect change, even if it can't necessarily be the responsibility of NBA players to uproot white supremacy solely by themselves, because that would be insane. You just made an extraordinary point. I think maybe that's, I mean, maybe that, maybe there's, there's hope um, in thinking about what you just described, which is without, the WNBA, Warnack doesn't win. Doesn't win. Yeah, period. And Ossoff doesn't win either. Okay. Yeah. And uh, on Tuesday, Warnock was declared the winner of his race. On Wednesday, as these people, these coup attempters are laying siege to the Capitol, very quietly the news comes out that Ossoff wins. So even in the, in, the worst and most horrific episode for our democracy in any of our lives in a couple of centuries, in that moment, while it's happening, we have the fruits of the labor of WNBA players coming to bear. And so maybe that's the way we look at this. You know, maybe we see the hope that's there in the midst of the darkness. And as you point out, 
sport, women in sport in particular, gave life to that hope. Well, I think we should probably leave it there. Is there anything that we you know, want to add as a closing statement? Um, anything we're working on that's related or not? No, I'm good. Uh, I'm good with. Uh, I'm good with that. It's tough to plug after that. Seriously. <laughs> it's really hard. <laughs> Where do you follow that up, man? Oh man. <sighs> well, you can find the pod on most podcatcher apps, and please subscribe so you don't miss an episode like this, or even a much more mundane. Hopefully, we'll have lots more of them soon. Um, if you like what you hear, please rate us five stars. If you don't like something, as always, just let us know. We will take your suggestion to heart, make a change if we can. Let us know with a comment on Twitter, uh, in an article uh, with the hashtag CLPOD, or just, you know, with your words. Uh, we're always trying to bring you the deepest dives into Celtics coverage, and I think we went a little beyond that today, I hope. Yeah, and just one more thing to throw out there. You can also find this pod on the OTG uh, website. Uh, it will be posted shortly as part of the rapidly developing Off the Glass podcast network. Uh, if you're looking for good coverage of the NBA from a variety of different angles, uh, we've got all sorts of great pods. Uh, you know, we've got Full Access Pacers, we've got Brooklyn Buzz, you know, the outlet. All, all pods that are uh, just terrific for deep dives on basketball as well as a whole host of other issues. So if you like this pod, check out some of the other OTG pods as well. Indeed. Take care, y'all. Yeah. Hey, thanks, guys. Take care. <laughs>